0: Uh, so I enjoy a good courtroom drama, whether that's on television or in a movie or even in a book. Uh, it's always so interesting. If you if you enjoy those along with me, it's, it's fascinating because as evidence is presented, and especially when witnesses are called to the stand, anybody who's watching at home or reading along, you get to start formulating your own conclusions, right? Is this witness credible? Uh, was he wearing his glasses when he witnessed the crime? Is her memory reliable or is it a little fuzzy? Are their accounts starting to kind of contradict each other? Or maybe this witness is corrupt and they're lying in an effort to sway the jury. You know, that's why, uh, of course, this is true in the real courtroom, not just in drama. Um, But you need multiple witnesses and multiple pieces of evidence so often to build a case. And as the trial goes on, we get to kind of put the puzzle together in our own minds, right? Uh, Nobody did this better than Matlock. That guy never lost a case, if you're familiar. Um, Y'all, I want to make an important point. As we think about that that image of the courtroom of testimony, uh, there's an important point I want to make as it concerns our faith. Some people, they hear the word faith, and they say, oh yes, faith is believing in something without any real reason or evidence. You know, faith is just, it's a leap into the dark for those who are willing to take it. But we ought to be clear, week by week, we ought to be clear as a church that we're not talking about the Christian faith in that case, not a leap into the dark, not a belief that has no strength or teeth behind it. Think about this, y'all. If you're familiar with Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, one of the most compelling aspects of the life of Jesus is that all throughout His ministry, Jesus was constantly being questioned and even attacked over His ministry, by the religious authorities of His day. All throughout the Gospels, people are continually challenging Jesus' authority, His identity, His claims, His teachings, His prophecies, His miracles. At every turn, people are putting up walls and challenging Him. And perhaps to our surprise, at no point does Jesus, in response to these challenges, He never says, guys, you just have to have faith. No, Jesus is always pointing them to concrete evidence. He says, search the Scriptures and you will see that they testify of Me. Consider the testimony of the prophets, especially uh, John the Baptist who was still alive at that time because they speak of Me and testify of Me. Consider My works and My miracles, how they bear witness to Me as the Son of God when we measure out Jesus' own prophecies, His own predictions about what was to come, especially His death and His resurrection, the puzzle fits together. Christianity is everything but a leap into the dark. And so y'all, when we see in the book of Acts, for example, the early church going out and spreading this Gospel message, the message of the apostles in the early church was not, hey, you got to believe in something. No, their message was, This Jesus, who was publicly crucified, has been raised from the dead and we have seen him. We've touched him. That is called eyewitness testimony. That's how the gospel got off the ground. That's what made it good news, is that it really happened. Now, y'all, by the time the Apostle John writes this letter, 1 John, it's safe to guess that most of the original eyewitnesses to that resurrection had died. First John was written maybe 60 years later. And so it's likely that John is one of the few remaining here as he writes. But y'all, the need to emphasize the trustworthiness of the gospel message had not changed. And it still hasn't. John is going to spell this out for us. And y'all, if, if, if you've followed with us as we've studied through this letter, John continues to repeat the same themes and ideas over and again. That redundancy is intentional because it's so important that we get it and stand firm on it. And so this is a little bit today of what we've already seen as John shows us the testimony, the truth of the gospel. Here today, it's going to start out a little confusing, heads up, but then I hope it gets a little more clarifying and ultimately gets very compelling for us. We're in 1 John chapter 5. And we're picking up in verse 6. So look with me at verse 6. John writes, he says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. This is the confusing part. Uh, And y'all, over the years, over the last 2,000 or so years, there have been many very wise and very faithful people who have differed as to the meaning of this Scripture right here. Okay, So when it says Jesus is the one who came by water and blood, what does that mean? Some have said that this is a reference to Christian baptism, water, and Christian communion, taking the cup, especially the blood of Christ. Other people have said this is a reference to Jesus when he was pierced in his side on the cross after he died, because John is the one who tells us in the Gospel of John that from that wound, both water and blood came forth. Uh, The strongest interpretation, I think, is this. The water here is a reference to Jesus' own baptism, which took place in the Jordan River at the beginning of his ministry. And the blood is a reference to Jesus' death on the cross. His baptism, the beginning of his ministry, and then his death, the end, in a sense, of his ministry. Beginning to end. Jesus came by water and blood. That's what I think is the strongest interpretation. If we differ on that, that's totally okay. It changes nothing. But that's what I believe is the best understanding of the Scripture. And part of the reason is is this. One of the heresies that threatened the early church in John's day, was there was a false teaching that tried to separate Jesus from Christ as if they did not really belong together. The teaching said this, there's a person, Jesus of Nazareth. He's a normal guy just like you and me. And then separately, there's a spirit, the Spirit of Christ. God's anointed Messiah. And these people said that when when the man Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, it was at that point that the Spirit of Christ came upon Him and anointed Him. That explains His ministry and His teaching and His miracles. But, that same Spirit of Christ withdrew and left Jesus sometime before He died on the cross. Now that may sound a little silly, But the attempt there is to try and keep the divine and the human separate. Because so many people still today don't believe that divine and human can meet. And so the teaching said, yes, God can anoint a man with his spirit, but God would never actually become a man. And certainly God would never subject himself to suffering and death the way that Jesus did. They just couldn't stomach that. But y'all, John is adamant right here. And this is the point, I think, of John's teaching. That Jesus is the Christ. Not was at one time or was only for a time, but He is the Christ who came by water and blood. He was Christ at His baptism through the water, and He was Christ at His crucifixion and the shedding of His blood beginning to end. Now, it's true that we don't encounter that particular false teaching so much anymore. You you may have never heard of that. Before, But we should, I hope, recognize the relevance of John's point in this. The sticking point for John, and for the false teachers both, was the blood of Christ. You you notice this in verse 6. He says, not by the water only, which seems to be a point of agreement. Everybody agrees that Jesus was a man who was baptized in the Jordan River. He says, but also by blood. And that was the point of disagreement. The ultimate purpose of Jesus' coming to earth was the shedding of His blood for the atonement of our sins. A lot of people in John's day did not like that teaching. And so they tried to fiddle with it. They tried to change it and deny it. Y'all, A lot of people today don't like that teaching. And so it is possible, and here's the relevance now, periodically you may encounter somebody or even a whole church that tries to reduce Jesus' death to something less than substitutionary atonement. Something less than Jesus taking the place of sinners and shedding his blood for our forgiveness. And so they might say, no, Jesus was, Jesus was a political victim of the Roman government. Uh, Jesus was a martyr for the cause of the poor and the powerless. Uh, Jesus was trying to, you know, by dying on the cross, Jesus was trying to show us a better way that God wants peace for the world. And y'all, all of those teachings end up in the same category that John is rebuking right here. Because they all are ways of trying to make Jesus out to be merely a great man dying for a great cause. But when John speaks of Christ's blood, he is speaking in terms of divine propitiation. And this is a term that John has already used twice in this letter. We've taught on it. Propitiation, which means Jesus is, He is the divine Son of God whose death satisfies the divine judgment of God in place of sinners on our behalf. Jesus, when His blood is shed because He came not only by the water but also by blood, the shedding of His blood achieves the payment of sin's penalty so that you and I might be freely and fully forgiven and reconciled now to God forever. That's the teaching of Christianity. That's the essential teaching. And without it, there is no Christianity. And so John declares this right here as sure and certain testimony. The water and the blood both speak to the identity of Jesus Christ as God's Son, not a mere man. And as our Savior, not a mere martyr. And then thirdly, if that wasn't enough, John says the Spirit of God testifies to the same. Notice again, back quickly in verse 6, he says the Spirit testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And this is John's way of saying, listen, it's not just my word against the word of the false teachers. God Himself affirms this as true through the ministry of of the Holy Spirit. So John is writing to Christians. He says, you who have received the Holy Spirit by faith, you have now in you the most powerful testimony of them all. God confirms it to us. And therefore, these three are always in agreement, John says. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. I hope that's a little clarifying, at least, to get us on the track. Y'all, we, we come back, I hope, to an important question here about relevance. I said this Scripture is relevant. I hope we see that. But sometimes it's hard to really nail it down. Y'all, I, I mentioned this. The specific heresy that John is combating is maybe something you've never even heard. And so how could that be relevant to me now? Or y'all, think about it. You read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the ministry of Jesus. He's constantly arguing back and forth with typically with the Jews, his fellow kinsmen, about matters of the law and of the Sabbath and of cleanliness and things like this. And we read these and they're fascinating perhaps, but they don't seem all that relevant. Because I'm not sure that anybody knocks on your door arguing with you about the Sabbath. And so where's the relevance here? Is it just interesting to read? Or is it really relevant to us deep down, day by day? Well, John is going to answer this question for us. He's going to answer it in the affirmative. It is relevant. But before he gives us the answer, I want to remind us of something we learned from Back to the Future. All right, an all time great movie. Y'all remember in Back to the Future how Marty inadvertently time travels back 30 years to 1955, and almost immediately he interacts with his mom and his dad, who at that time were only teenagers themselves. Then he finds Doc Brown, the man who eventually invents that time machine. and Doc's first question is, have you interacted with anyone since you time traveled? Anyone at all? And Marty says, yeah, I sort of kind of bumped into my parents. Which sends Doc into a panic. Right? Great Scott! And he tries to communicate to Marty that any interaction, anything that might disrupt the space-time continuum could have catastrophic effects on future events. If Marty interferes with things in 1955, then his parents may never end up dating and not getting married, and therefore Marty never exists. He disappears from history. In other words, the very smallest decisions, the the most minute little things, end up having the most enormous implications and consequences. That's what John is communicating to us here in this letter we might trifle with certain false teachings. That's not relevant to me today. I've never heard that. Therefore, it doesn't apply. And if a person would argue back to the Apostle John here in 1 John 5 and say, hey, well, okay, but, re- but really, what difference does it make that Jesus came by the water and by the blood? I mean, can't I just decide for myself what Jesus means to me? And John's response, I feel certain, would be no. You're, you're, you're treating these matters as though they were minor and insignificant when in reality, the implications are massive. You can't get Jesus wrong. Because everything rises and falls with Him. This is life and death, John says. And he, he, he does say this. If we see in verse 9. Look at what he says next. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Let's revisit the courtroom image here for a second. A witness comes and takes the stand. She speaks clearly. She speaks with credibility. Her story checks out. All of it seems straight. And it lines up with the evidence and all the known facts. What do we do as a bystander or a member of the jury? We accept her testimony because all the puzzle pieces seem to fit. John says, how much more should we accept the Word of God? How much greater is God's testimony concerning His Son? And this really is the crux of the issue here for John and for us, y'all. The truth concerning Jesus does not rise or fall on any one human witness. As important as that is to the account, the eyewitnesses of Christ, John is one of them. But John is telling us right here, it's not merely His Word against the world. It's not merely John's witness or Peter's witness or Paul's witness, as valuable as that is. John says the truth concerning Jesus is the established testimony of God Himself. God speaks this Word. God furnishes the proof. Now this is a, this is a testimony that, that we see throughout the Scripture. It's not unique to 1 John chapter 5. Jesus made this same point all throughout His ministry. There's a key spot, y'all, in John chapter 5. It'd be worth reading the whole chapter of John 5. Where Jesus is arguing, and again, He's in an argument with His opponents, but He's taking them from the lesser testimony and reality to the greater. And so He says to the religious leaders something very profound. He says, if you believed Moses, Moses who wrote... The law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. What a statement. But Jesus's point there is simple. You accept the testimony of Moses, and they did. And certainly Moses was a great man, but he was only a man. And yet you do not accept me, Jesus says. You accept the lesser but you reject the greater to which the lesser was pointing. And and Jesus goes even further than that. They're in the same chapter, John 5, verse 37. Look at what Jesus says again to the same people who are pushing back against His identity, His testimony. He says, the Father who sent Me, He has testified of Me. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. You do not have His Word abiding in you for you do not believe Him whom He sent. There's the heart of the matter. There's the issue. Jesus says, you don't receive Me because you don't really know God. If you believed Him, you would trust Me. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, we're told in Hebrews 1 that while God has spoken at many different times and in many different ways, In these last days, God has spoken to the world in His Son, Hebrews tells us. And it is Jesus who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. And so this Jesus of whom John testifies, this Jesus is not a mere man anointed with a prophetic word as the prophets were. He's more than that. Nor is Jesus an angel sent down to serve as God's ambassador. He's more than that. Jesus is God Himself. God in the flesh. Which is why when Jesus came by water, when He was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, you know this account, the heavens opened up and the voice of the Lord spoke over Him, this is My beloved Son. In you, I am well pleased. John's point to us is this: you cannot deny, or even diminish Jesus, and still somehow hold on to God. You cannot deny Jesus and still hold on to some spiritual reality that's that's in the end worth anything. Everything rises and falls on this man who is God, on Jesus Christ. And so we see this again in verse 10. We just read it, but let's look at it again. Verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made God a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. John says the same thing Jesus said which is to deny Jesus is to deny God altogether. It's to call God a liar. Because you have rejected the very thing, the ultimate, most important thing that God has testified to in the sending of His Son. And y'all, I just want to make a clarification here. It's one thing to be ignorant of Jesus. Some people don't know Jesus because they've never heard of Him. And that is for us, that ought to be for us a point of both grief and urgency. Because every tongue, tribe, and nation is meant to hear of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But that's not the context of 1 John 5. John is not referencing ignorance here. He's talking about sinful negligence. These false teachers, they know the gospel. But they have twisted it. And so John says, these people who have diminished or denied Jesus, these people who accept His baptism somehow, but deny His death and resurrection, he says they have attributed falsehood to God. They have called God a liar. They have set themselves against the Lord. And this is all at once, this is a great tragedy for them. And yet it is for us our great hope and our glory. John puts the two side by side as one and the same because everything rises and falls on Jesus is a tragedy for some and a glory for others. Look at what it comes down to now in verse 11. And the testimony is this, John says, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And so here it is. At long last, here is the testimony that John has been referencing. The one great ultimate truth that God has for the world. Here's what the Spirit and the water and the blood all agree with and testify to. That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. You know, I'm, I, I struggle sometimes in preaching to give proper weight to what the Bible tells us. I'm not sure, it's, it's, it, sometimes it just doesn't feel possible how deep and how rich what we just read really is. Y'all think about this. The gospel message does not say God has shown us where to find life if we're willing to search for it. The Gospel does not say, God has shown us how to earn life if we're willing to work for it. No, the Gospel says, God has given us eternal life in His Son. And you think about the language John is using here. Eternal life is a gift from God And at the same time, eternal life is the gift of God. The life is in His Son. We receive this life by believing in Jesus. Yes, of course, but John takes us even a layer deeper than that. We don't just believe in a vicarious kind of way. There's somebody out there named Jesus and I cast my belief over onto Him outside of me. That's not the Christian message. A Christian is not someone who merely believes in Jesus, but John says a Christian has Jesus. The one who has the Son has the life. And you're like, that's something I just can't fully wrap my mind around. I don't know that I ever will. But that's what the Scripture teaches that eternal life is not just an ongoing experience of life that just continues to go on and on and on. What good would that do? Eternal life is a different kind of life. Created in and sustained by and granted from God. Eternal life is the never-ending experience of perfect fellowship with Jesus where His grace and His kindness and His love and glory are lavished on us without measure and without end. That's what it means to have the life. And so y'all, why is John so adamant about the little doctrinal details? Why does the water and the blood matter to him? Why is John taking up space in his letter to address all these varying religious teachings that, that, that seem to kind of nitpick at the church? Here's the answer. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ. And that's not a message we maybe prefer. It's not a message the world embraces. But that's what the Bible teaches. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ. We cannot afford to get Him wrong. That doesn't mean we always have to know everything. But we cannot afford to shrink Jesus down to our level. To cheapen His grace. To grant Him some measure of authority in our lives. The baptism and the Spirit and the ministry, how great. But at the end of the day, He just died like the rest of us. No. Either He is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, or we're wasting our lives and there is no hope. The stakes could not be any higher for those who reject Him, and the eternal joy could not be any greater for those who receive Him. That's what John is telling us. That's why the details matter. That's why the Word of God is so central to everything that we are. And so here's the question that John asks us this morning, straight from the Scripture. Do you have the Son? Have you received the gift of God, eternal life in Jesus Christ? We've heard the testimony this morning of God's grace in sending Jesus to rescue sinners The shedding of His blood was shed for us that He might bear the penalty of our sin in our place so that we might not come into judgment but have everlasting life in Him. We receive this gift by faith, not by our own works, not by our best intentions or our promises to do better or any such thing that we might bring to the table. It is entirely the work of God for us and it is the work of God now in us. We receive Christ for who He is and all that He's done. The one who has the Son has the life. And I want to invite you today, I want to appeal to you today, that if you have not trusted Christ to receive the life that God freely gives in Him, that that is not something you have to clean up in advance to receive. That's not something you have to do anything prior. That's not something that you have to to receive the confirmation of the pastor in this moment, and my hand upon your head, you simply look to the Savior, Jesus Christ, and trust Him. You receive Him. And all of His grace is freely given, both now and forever. What a gift we've been given. If you have the Son, you have eternal life. Father, I would ask this morning, Lord, for You to do the the necessary dividing within us, in in my heart, in every heart, Lord, to see what John is telling us. And Lord, if we have perhaps been living in some kind of gray and middle area, that Lord, You would make clear to us today what John says very explicitly. that there is life only in Jesus Christ. Eternal life, abundant life, never-ending, perfect fellowship with You. Lord, a gift beyond our comprehension, but we must receive Him. Lord, if, if perhaps we have, even if unintentionally, Lord, if we have kind of shrunk Jesus down or imagined Him as something less, and the Savior who shed His blood for me. Then, so Lord, I pray that You would broaden our view of Him this morning. Lord, show us how great and glorious the Son of God is. And Father, give us a, a sense also of, of how genuine, how sincere and wonderful Your love for us is. That Lord, it's not Your desire that we should perish. Lord, it's not Your desire that we should should miss this precious gift, Lord. The testimony of God is this, that you have given us eternal life, and this life is in your Son. Father, would you, would you grant us, Lord, eyes to see clearly and hearts to take in very deeply such wonderful truth. Lord, not our earning, not our searching, not our doing, your gracious gift. And Lord, let our, if we trust Jesus this morning, I pray that our allegiance to him would be stronger than ever, that that we would have, Lord, no tolerance, no desire at all for anything less than him. But that he would be, Lord, the apple of our eye, the great love of our heart. Father, thank you for the word from your scripture this morning that testifies to us Lord, your spirit, the water and the blood, Lord, the very real and tangible things that the eyewitnesses saw and documented, the resurrection of our Savior from the grave, Lord, all of it stands as true, and therefore, Lord, our hope is secure. We stand on the solid rock of the grace and truth of Jesus. Lord, let that be true for each and every one of us this morning. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen.